Welcome to the Broken Pie Truck Podcast, episode 38. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and today we're going to talk a little bit about concentrated stock risk. What is it? How diversification can help one half of the risk equation. And I'm going to give you some interesting numbers with regards to how we view risk, just at least from a standard deviation or a variance point of view, when we compare a diversified market portfolio to that of, let's say, a single stock. And finally, uh, I'll give you a, a little bit of a tease for a future episode where we'll get into a little bit more about how exactly you hedge concentrated stockers. Because not everybody wants to sell. Uh, they may know, know they're concentrated, but they may not want to sell for various reasons that we'll get into a little bit on this podcast. And I'll talk a little bit about just historically some of the the annual drawdowns we've seen in a stock like Apple, which historically has had a uh, you know, an unbelievable run over, uh, I think I've got some numbers starting in 1981 through 2018. But first of all, what is concentrated risk? Well, normally when we think about concentrated risk, it's, you know, imagine you own a, you have an investment account or a portfolio and you have a, just one stock in there. doesn't matter which stock it is, but you just have one single stock in there. Well, all of the risk is concentrated in that one name. And and by the way, you know, it doesn't have to be just one stock. You could actually have, you know, a few stocks in there. Or you might have a number of stocks that actually have the same sort of sensitivity to a part of the economy. Uh, I forget who said it, and I wish I could because I would certainly give them credit. Uh, but he or she uh, back when said, you know, you may think you're diversified, but you're not really if you have 15 stocks, but they're all railroad stocks, so to speak. So it, you know, it's a single name, but you also could have multiple names or you could have some concentration, in certain sectors and things like that. So when we look at risk, there's really two main types of risk. There's what we call systematic market risk and then what's called idiosyncratic risk. Systematic market risk, you cannot diversify away. Idiosyncratic risk, you can theoretically diversify that away. And I'll have more thoughts about how we handle the part of the risk spectrum that you can't diversify away in a second. But idiosyncratic risk is really, it's, it's a single risk. It's the risk due to or inherent in the investment itself, not the overall market. And so what do I mean by that? Well, let's, let's think about a stock. So a stock could uh, put out a really bad earnings report. And, and by the way, there, there's a lot of instances historically where we've seen really big drops in a stock right around earnings. I think, what was it, Facebook or LinkedIn? I think they dropped 30 or 40% one day. Of course, LinkedIn now is part of Microsoft. Uh, I remember back in 2015, Disney put out a positive earnings report. Positive earnings report, not a negative one, positive and they actually dropped close to 10% from close to open, meaning they closed at one price, the news comes out, and they open nearly 10% down the next day. And if I remember correctly, the reason why Disney went down that much is because they, they had something in their statement about worrying about subscriber growth for ESPN. Remember when the, the whole cord cutting thing started to happen. But... You know, a lot of di- a lot of different instances of, of stock, uh, you know, certainly gapping down because of news. So, 
bad news you could have, let's say it's a it's a medical or pharmaceutical company waiting for an FDA uh, ruling on whether they can sell a medicine, uh, not getting approved could cause a stock to go down. The CEO being le- you know led away in handcuffs. Never good to see that on CNBC. Uh, but Martha Stewart, remember when when she was on trial for uh, uh, with the SEC and she was sentenced to some time. Uh, by the way, also a really good uh, example of how options premium inflates right before a news event. Because I remember the the implied volatility on the options on Martha Stewart's company went through the roof, and that stock really moved after that announcement came out. So idiosyncratic risk is the risk that's specific to, let's say, the stock, okay? You, you can diversify that away, meaning if you went into a diversified portfolio instead of having a concentrated portfolio, uh, you could spread the risk far enough that an isolated event in one name won't bring down the whole portfolio where a single stock, anything happens specific to that, and you could be in a lot of trouble. The systematic market risk is, well, just as I said it was, systematic market risk is when the whole market is selling off. And, you know, I've, I've done some podcasts before and in the book, uh, Broken Pie Chart that I wrote, I have a whole chapter about why diversification fails. And in fact, uh, recently I was doing some work on, uh, on this very subject and, you know, looking back on that, it, it didn't matter what sector, let's say in 2008, didn't matter what sector you had, didn't matter what country you had, it all went down. So the only way to lessen systematic market risk is through a good hedged equity uh, strategy where you're actually, you have protection in the portfolio that stops losses or makes money on a, on a one-to-one basis as the investment you're covering is losing money. And so you're sort of hedging the downside. But the two types of risk, one, in theory, you can diversify uh, that away, and that's idiosyncratic risk. Systematic risk, you can't, you know, that you, even if you're diversified, the whole market goes down, the market goes down, right? And you might be thinking, well, okay, if, if we know there's single stock risk is much greater, uh, well, first, I mean, how much greater is it? And if you think about the market, and I recently ran some numbers going back, what was it, 1928 through 2018, and the standard deviation, meaning, so, okay, so you have an average, and then how much did returns deviate on a single standard deviation basis? And, and normally it's about 17.5%. Uh, somebody did a, a paper, and they had a market portfolio at a standard deviation. I think their time was uh, 80s to, to 90s, but was about 14.5% for the period they looked at. Uh, but generally, and, and I'll link to, uh, to some of those in, in the show notes, but generally the consensus looking at some of the research said that uh, you could put about a 30% premium on the expected standard deviation. Remember the old bell curve, 68% of the time prices or something falls between here and here, and I'm kind of making the curve with my hands. But basically, if, if your market portfolio has a standard deviation of about 17.5%, you theoretically could expect a single stock to have a, a standard deviation of more like 47% about there. Okay, So what that's telling us is that the expectation of holding a single stock is that you are going to experience much greater volatility than had you owned a market portfolio. And of course, a market portfolio could be something like the SPY, 
which is the S&P 500 index ETF. But easy to, these days to just buy an ETF and you could have the whole, whole market. But that's one of the reasons why there's, when we look at concentration risk and you're in one name, you should expect a lot more volatility. But also you could have some really big drawdowns uh, because it's just so isolated in, in really just single event risk, right? So if we know that, the question always comes up, you know, why, why wouldn't somebody diversify away from that? And there's really two, two types of investors. One knows they, they have single stock risk and they choose not to diversify away. And typically, or some, the other side is they, they may not realize how much more risk they're taking. And you might say, well, how do they not realize that? Well, sometimes people just own a stock and they've owned it for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, it's gone up and they've, they sort of accumulated more wealth in that stock. But for those that choose not to diversify, there's a couple of reasons. You know, a lot of times executives working at companies, they might accumulate stock grants and things like that. So they have a lot of stock in their own company. Um, and then the other thing is with people who have single stocks, let's say they've been granted shares and they've got really low cost basis or somebody bought a stock a long time ago and they've just held it. Low cost basis means that if you sell it and you realize a capital gain, you've got to pay taxes on those, uh, those capital gains. And so some people look at that and say, well, I could sell it and diversify, and I know that's a good idea, but if I sell it, I'll lose, you know, 15 to uh, 15%, let's say, on average. Um, there could, could be some other instances when uh, there's net investment tax, and, um, it, you know, I won't get into that right now. But let they say, well, look, I already have a 15% a hedge generally on, on that anyway. So they may choose not to. Some people just really believe in the stock and they don't want to sell it. And they think that stock gives them the best chance for success. And other people, maybe it's a dividend-paying stock, and they really like keeping that dividend. And so, as I said, I mean, we'll do another episode where we talk about how you can really um, hedge away that idiosyncratic risk, and you know, in many cases, keep the shares, but lessen the the catastrophic risk on there. So that will be uh, we'll have that pretty soon, and that will be a good episode to listen to as well. But those are some of the reasons why somebody might have that. Um, and by the way, when we think about diversification, it is interesting. I was looking at a, uh, uh, economics or sorry, a finance textbook recently. And the authors of the, that textbook, uh, sort of said, you know, once you have about 15 different stocks that, um, and I, and I assume they, they're putting those in different industries or sectors and things like that. But once you get about 15 stocks that, uh, sort of the diminishing returns past that as you add more and more stocks. So you get your biggest bang for your buck, so to speak, um, up to 15 and then 15, let's say to, you know, 500. It, it's marginal, the difference or the reduction of standard deviation. Um, and I say, you know, it depends. It's important. It can't just be any 15 stocks. Remember, correlation matters. And so remember, correlation is negative one to one. And if a, if a group of, if you have 15 stocks, but they're all correlated, it means they're probably going to go up and down at the same time. Uh, of course, as I said earlier, diversification helps up to a certain point. But when markets are bad enough, diverse uh, correlations tend to go to one, meaning it all sort of gets correlated. So, all right. Uh, one of the things, too, I wanted to explore, I pulled up some data on 
Apple. And, you know, not, not a stock I, uh, uh, well, just to say, it's, it's not an investment recommendation, right? Uh, but I thought it, enough people hold Apple and are familiar, maybe they have an Apple phone, that I would take a look at some of the annual drawdowns that the stock has had. Now, I went back and took a look at prices starting in 1981 through 2018. And if you bought, by the way, if you bought Apple in 1981, good for you, because uh, I don't know if it's on most people's radars, right? But if you bought it in 1981 and you put $10,000 into it, uh, I think I figured out it had over a 15% annualized compounded growth rate. Um, so that accounts for you know compounding. And I think that puts you over $2 million right now. Uh, I don't know how many, how many people bought it in 1981, uh, but anyway, looking at the stock, though, there are some pretty significant drawdowns. 2008 was close to 57%. 2000 was a tiny bit over 71%. 93 was 51%. Uh, you had 95, 96, 97, where the stock lost eight, I'll, I'll call it, you know, over 18%, over 34%, over 37%, respectively. So three straight years. And so as well as the stock has done, you know, looking back, not forward, but looking back, uh, it has had quite a bit of uh, years where you've had significant drawdowns. And I thought it was interesting to look at that because that actually helps to highlight some of the the risk inherent with um, just the, a single name compared to, let's say, the overall market. And let's say, and by the way, that's that's a good example. I mean, let's say you did own a stock and, and maybe you didn't know enough to buy Apple in 1981, but let's, you know, we I've seen uh, a lot of times when people have had shares, let's say Coca-Cola or uh, I was going to say GE, but GE's had, uh, has come down a little bit lately, but, you know, just different stocks that they've held for many years. Uh, when I used to work in, um, in, a, in a retail office brokerage firm, and people still had stock certificates. They'd come up, come in with these stock certificates sometimes. And the way it worked was, let's say if the stock split, uh, they wouldn't necessarily bring you or send you new stock certificates. And so 100 shares that split many times or 1,000 shares that split a bunch of times, uh, they would find out, you know, they'd find these stock certificates somewhere um, and they'd bring them in and we'd run it, run it through the, the system and find out, it was actually quite a number of shares. So it's not uncommon for people to hold uh, individual names for a long time. And if it's a it's a company that's had a continuous growth rate and it's split a bunch of times and you know you never know you might people might have wound up uh, with quite a bit of shares in there. And so it's not uncommon to happen um, more often than not, it's someone who has maybe a founder of a company or somebody worked at a company and they continually got either shares as compensation or they had the, you know, they either have them granted or, and, and most of the case there, they have that low cost basis. Um, so certainly that's one of the issues with, uh, uh, with that situation. But I think if, if you take away from the, all right, a couple of things to take away from this episode. The first one is to understand the two types of risk. Systematic risk, that's the whole market. Idiosyncratic risk, that's the risk uh, in the single stock or in a concentrated position. Maybe it's a few stocks. That's the stock that theoretically you can diversify away from. 
you cannot diversify enough for really systematic risk, um, as, at least as far as equities, right? But those are two of the big things. The other is holding, you know, a name or just a few names. Chances are you're going to experience a lot more volatility in returns. And as I said, uh, a lot of the researchers put it at a plus 30%. So meaning if you're 15% standard deviation on an annualized basis on holding a market portfolio, you probably would expect to uh, to get you know something more like 45% standard deviation, which is quite a bit, quite a bit. Um, and then the other thing to take away from this too is, and you know, there's uh, obviously. Oh, and by the way, I, I, before I, I forget and, and move on from this point, I, I ran Apple's numbers from 1981 through 2018, and its standard deviation was 50% higher. Uh, I shouldn't say 50% higher, but 50 percentage points higher than, let's say, a market portfolio. Uh, their standard deviation from 1981 through 2018, just using the simple average of returns and and uh, computing the standard deviation over that time of annual returns, their standard deviation was 68.25%. That's pretty high. It doesn't, you know, again, it's returned uh, uh, at least looking backward, not forward, but we can only we only know what happened in the past. Uh, that's been about a 15% annualized uh, growth rate. Uh, also, what's kind of interesting too, I'd have to go back and look at it, but I think the price in 81 or 82, it got to around that same price uh, quite a number of years later after several drawdowns. So I thought that was interesting as well. Uh, but I almost forgot to throw that in there and I did the numbers and so I thought I'd uh, thought I'd at least share that. And so as I said, we'll, we'll talk on a, another episode where we go through and there's some really interesting things that you can do to hedge single stock, low cost basis positions where people can uh, hedge the downside. So using options, because uh, options are a defined uh, risk tool, right? But you can use options. Um, but also there's an opportunity to generate income uh, using those single stocks uh, with low cost basis as collateral. And you can generate income uh, from a number of ways, uh, overlaying you know different option strategies on top of it, or uh, just generating, let's say, through something as simple as covered calls. And that gets a little bit tricky. And I know people think about covered calls as being, hey, it's just you know selling calls on a stock that I own. But remember, if it's low cost basis, and that gets called away, you could have a, a pretty significant uh, tax situation. Uh, but the other thing that that too we'll explore on that uh, upcoming episode, as I said, it'll, it'll be out shortly, probably uh, within the next two weeks or so, and that's the idea of a structured schedule to diversify. So some people say, "Look, I've got all this stock, I've got a low cost basis. If I sell it all now and I diversify, I know the risk, but I'll pay a, a ton of taxes." And so one of the things we can do with options is sort of uh, set up a schedule to divest some of the position. Uh, so somebody you know, says, look, I want to get rid of X number of shares and do it over so many years and sort of have a schedule. But the other, one of the, the neatest things, I think it, it goes back to what we call the hedger's opportunity. And that's if you own something that 
hedges the downside. Let's say a single stock takes a, a significant drawdown, but you've got an option position that uh, goes up in value against the, the losses you're suffering. Well, what becomes really interesting, if you can take those hedging profits and then put that into something, you know, it's almost use the hedging profits to help start to diversify. Um, of course, I would recommend, you know, buying or using those hedging profits, putting into something, you know, like it's a market portfolio, but then have that hedge as well, because then you get the, the systematic risk hedging. Uh, but that's also a way that uh, when there's a, a significant downside, you could take those hedging profits and reinvest it, um, let's say, in the market at lower levels. And also it helps to sort of quasi-diversify as well because you're taking those, uh, you're not going to put it back into the, the same stock. Uh, or maybe you would, who knows. But anyway, so we'll leave it there. I wanted to, I'm getting some questions on uh, what, what can you really do with what stock that you own that you, you would pay a ton of taxes on if you sold it because of capital gains. And, but you know that there's risk in it. Uh, you know that holding very few positions or a single position has quite a bit of risk. And, we, and so a lot of people understand that. Um, so I think uh, stay tuned, folks, for the upcoming episode. And uh, with that, we'll talk to you soon. Have a good one.